0: Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer and educator Keith Polite about his collection of highbun poetry, Pilgrimage, published by Red Moon Press.
1: And if you are not changed by the pilgrimage itself, then the pilgrimage has been a failure. So there should be a transformation or a transposition of consciousness at the site of the pilgrimage and after. That's I think perhaps pilgrimage is an attempt to do that. This book of poems may be In some ways my attempt to you know find the mix of resin and gold dust to repair the scars that i've managed to acquire through this life i've had
0: keith belitt hyben poetry and pilgrimage on arts and letters From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Medic, and welcome to Arts & Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be talking with writer Keith Polite about his Haibon poetry collection, Pilgrimage, a genre that combines prose poetry with haiku as a postscript to the poem.
2: River Blossom
1: in his wonderful book, Christ and Apollo, articulated this movement where he says, the movement of the imagination must first descend into its tang and density of particular lived experience before it can rise out into a new field of action. And so I think that's a really important movement is to move downward in what is called a catabasis, a downward movement, a downward trajectory into the darkness, into what we might call the shadow world.
0: Prosometric form originating in 17th century Japan juxtaposes sensory images and details, allowing for a variety of writing, including autobiography, philosophical musing, and vignettes.
1: To become in touch with those things which we have left behind that we have forgotten and that we have not yet discovered, often because we want to turn away from them one of the things that I really like about working with the Haibun form, is I'm trying to see what are the possibilities of rhetorical design and construction, and is it possible, for instance, to write an extended one-sentence Haibun? Because as I was looking at Haibun, I thought, these are very local kinds of writing. They focused on detail and attention to a specific kind of experience. I thought, well, this is really fascinating, because that's what haiku also does. It focuses on a moment of perception and a a particular detail quite often. And what Haibun does is it just expands that to some degree, so I thought I should give that a shot.
0: So pack up your bags and put on your walking shoes and let's go on a Haibun Poetry Pilgrimage with author Keith Belit on Arts and Letters. Keith Polite, welcome to Arts and Letters.
1: Well, thank you, Brad. Really really happy to be here.
0: It's wonderful to have you here. This book, Pilgrimage, is Haibun poetry, right? Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's correct. It's Haibun poetry, yes. So, tell us a little bit about Haibun poetry. I know that people kind of have a good sense of haiku and they have a sense of narrative poetry, but this form of poetry puts both of those forms together. It does, yes. And
1: it's simplest form. Haibun is a combination of a prose piece. It looks like a prose poem, actually. And it's usually written in paragraph structure, and then it's followed by a haiku. Now, many haibun poems also, though, have more than one haiku in them. But what I've decided to do in pilgrimage is just write haibun that have one block of prose, and then uh, that is followed by a haiku.
0: So, did you see the uh, Ken Burns' a uh, documentary on
1: Hemingway? I haven't seen it yet, no.
0: In that documentary, he shows that house that you write about in pilgrimage. I guess right now it's more of a, a museum or a spot where people go, but at the time you went, it seems you had to look through binoculars <laughs> to see this house.
1: Yes, it was not open to the public. I was living in Pocatello, Idaho at the time, working on my master's in English, and so a few of us made a pilgrimage to um, Sun Valley, Uh, Ketchum, Idaho, to see if we could visit the Hemingway House, but it was closed to the public, of course. So we camped out that night and uh, talked, shared stories.
3: Pilgrimage. It took all day to hitchhike across Idaho to Hemingway's last house, which sits on a sagebrush shelf overlooking the Big Wood River. It is a square house made of concrete molded to look like wood, and each wall is a large window, so the house always looks outward. I had to view the house from afar since this was the time before the public was welcomed in. Through my telephoto lens, taking photos from the edge of the forest, felt like I had found big prey. That night, I pitched my tent in a local park. Inside I prepared to read some of Papa's tales, but before I could open the book, thunderclouds, which had been building all afternoon, broke open like a shotgun blast dark, I closed my eyes and listened to the sound of stories rain down on me all night.
1: Haiku. After the flood, the water marks on her letter.
0: The persona is looking out at this house and imagining imagining Papa inside it. There's this notion of the big prey and then there's sudden violence at the end, which was
1: Hemingway's life. It was, yes. As I read him, though, I try to see the metaphor of what he was doing rather than the particularity of it. So as he's looking for a big game, I'm also thinking, well, we're all looking for the big game, aren't we? And how did we find that? Tell us a little
0: how the haiku Relates because sometimes it seems like it relates specifically and then other times tangentially to the poems, narrative poems.
1: Right. The Haibun form, of course, comes from the great Japanese poet Basho in his Narrow Road to the Interior, which is a travelogue, and he writes a lot about his experiences, and he then punctuates the prose pieces with haiku, and what he does with a haiku is what you're talking about. Some of them actually comment on directly the experiences he's articulating, And some of them do what we call link and shift. They'll take an image or an idea from the haibun, and then they'll extrapolate that, and they'll have a lot of air between the first prose piece and then the haiku itself. The haiku will then usually take an expanded perspective, or it will take a turn so as to comment on the haibun in a different way. So it's really what, in some ways, is what Robert Black calls a leap from one point of view to another. And they're joined together by an image or an idea or an impulse or an emotion or something like that, which then I think gives the haibun itself a lot more uh, resonance and depth.
0: And then you called this pilgrimage. So when I think about pilgrimages, uh, I think I'm in search of something or or looking for something. What what were you in search of?
1: I don't know, <laughs> actually, when I started it. <laughs> when I started writing haibun, I really had no intention or a goal in mind. I just thought, this is a really interesting form Let's just see how it takes my imagination and moves it forward or moves it backward. So I began writing these, and I just, uh, over a two-year period, I found I had written about 42. And they seemed to me, after I thought, well, this could make an interesting book, so it seemed that they articulated for me a kind of pilgrimage of imagination on, and perspective in two ways primarily. One is this is a different kind of writing that I've done in the past poetically in the, my previous kinds of poems, they tended to be rather constricted, I think, now that I look back on them. Whereas what I found with the high and it really does open up my possibilities of thinking and imagining, and most importantly, of experiencing the world differently. So in that sense, it's a pilgrimage going from what was for me in terms of poetic and artistic output to something brand new in terms of perspective and even lived experience.
0: I'm Jay Bradley Menick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. This is Arts and Letters. We're talking with author Keith Pellet about his Haiban poetry collection, Pilgrimage. What I notice in these is it's interesting. You have elements of the desert. Yes. You have elements of this persona's childhood, and I'm assuming in some ways it's you, but um, it's it's (laughs) the childhood. And then there's a kind of movement outward. So could you talk about the architecture of this? I know we had spoken a little bit earlier about the architecture of the book and how you were kind of imagining the poems unfolding.
1: Yes. This is something I discovered once I looked at the body of all of the poems together. They seem to suggest to me that they wanted to present themselves in a kind of organic fashion because the first poem is about the desert itself. And so it's moving into the desert and all of that which is implied by desert landscapes and by the metaphor of desert in terms of aridness and loss and paring things down to their essential core, getting down to the bare bleached bones of existence, as you know Thoreau might have said if he had been in the desert.
0: Those who haven't been to the desert, I think this poem just so captures its essence.
1: Would you mind reading it for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. I'll read the epigraph that I have. It's from a poem by David Wagner because it does encapsulate a sense of what this book of Eibon is trying to do. David Wagner writes in his wonderful poem, Lost, he writes this, If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are you must let it find you. So the poem is called From the Edge. From the Edge. Something calls to me from the edge of the desert. A fence of sagging guitar strings that no longer carries a tune. The scattered skulls of cows lowing to the wind. An arroyo mouthing a dry poem stones rising out of the sand to sing of constellations that have never been named. A rusted truck turned sphinx, waiting for a lone traveler to question. A blue-tailed lizard, startled by the passing shadow of a hawk that scurries onto the top of the rock Surveys the empty sky and then rests like a monument to itself for the whole of an afternoon. Then here's the haiku Hands in prayer. Hands
3: in prayer.
1: A, butterfly its wings. a
3: butterfly brings its wings
1: together. together. And that's one sentence. Yes, the whole poem is one sentence. That's one of the things that I really like about working with the haibun form is I'm trying to see what are the possibilities of rhetorical design and construction, and is it possible, for instance, to write an extended one-sentence haibun? And of course it is. I love
0: the idea of the sagging guitar strings that don't carry the tune any longer, and then the skulls. So it's as if things are not quite disappearing, but you're just catching elements from the edge, right? Yes. Maybe out of the corner of your eye.
1: And there's a quality about these that in the Japanese aesthetic is called wabi-sabi, two words, wabi-sabi. And those together mean a sense of loss and sadness due to the impermanence of life itself. But it's not the sadness of melancholy. It's not the sadness of depression. It's a recognition of the transient nature of life itself and an acceptance of that. So I wanted to find images that I thought might carry that that kind of aesthetic idea.
0: So any suggestions if you were going to teach someone to do this?
1: In fact, (laughs) I'm working on an article that does just that, because I thought well, this is such a wonderful form. How is it that we could put this together and create a scaffold so that we could help people write it themselves? So I've been giving this quite a bit of thought and I think because Haibun wonderfully opens itself up to a myriad number of styles and approaches. There's not just one way to do it. That's the beauty of it. Secondarily, though, if you haven't really read a lot of Haibun, you might become a little overwhelmed by your choices. So I might start here by this. um, And I get this notion from uh, Jung, who says, Call an image to mind, and then sit with it. So the image might be an image itself of something. It might be an image of an experience that we've had. It might be a felt emotion. So call that to mind, and then sit with it. And then start writing and see where that takes you, trying to stay as particular and as concrete as possible as you articulate the lived experience, focusing on sensory details. And what I've tried to do in the Haibun is also a lot of lyrical language because that gives it a lot of resonance that I think carries over to the reader. Also, what you want to do is be as concise and as compressed as possible, so that you then have these two turns. You start with the expression of an experience or an image, and then it takes your imagination somewhere that's a bit unexpected, so there's a bit of a shift in each haibun, And that's harder to teach because you have to help people learn to relax into that shift itself. It's not something you can really plan on.
0: So I think one place where kind of it's evident, and I also thought you might talk about, because in so many of these, you not only talk about a childhood, but also a literary childhood. Yes. And in this one too, it has this kind of classic form, and it's the Ivan fish. It kind of deals with a self-referential form, right? Mm -hmm. The character is eight, but then there's a classic folktale in it, and then there's also just this notion of fishing, too.
1: Yeah, this pie bone is based on an experience I had as a child. This book was in my grandmother's house, and we used to visit her, and I would look at that book, and it's The Five Chinese Brothers is the folktale. One of my favorite folktales as a child hadn't thought about it for quite a while, and then as I was writing Haibun, that popped into my mind and I thought, well, where will this take me? And how can I think about this anew from a perspective as an adult? Trying to recapture the sense of childhood, the kind of thing that Wordsworth talks about in his Odes of Intimation of Childhood, to recapture that sort of golden moment and yet having also a recognition of, as I mentioned before, the sense of wabi-sabi. And how do I merge the two?
0: Would, would you read Fish for us? And, and I just must say, as an aside, I love it says frog puffed because I know how much you love frogs too. So <laughs> yes. like.
1: Fish. When I was eight, I found the five Chinese brothers in a book of folktales on my grandmother's bookshelf. And what fascinated me more than the ways in which the four older identical brothers were impervious to the devices of death designed for them was how the youngest of them was able to inhale the sea, hold it in his mouth, frog puffed, and then collect the fish that were left behind. And here I pause to imagine them, the legions of fish, flopping in the mud of an endless field, their water world suddenly siphoned off, wriggling like brightly colored dancers having lost their limbs, their unblinking eyes grim with surprise their gaping mouth screaming in silence as the boy basketed them while the circling gulls began their slow descent. Haiku, pawn shop, wedding rings glitter in the window. Yeah. So help us with how
0: the haiku relates to the poem, because in some ways it's so sad. There's these wedding rings in a pawn shop window that have not been reclaimed. And, you know, got to figure you got to be at a low point if you're selling the wedding ring to a pawn shop. And then, of course, the gulls are about to circle in and and grab the fish. How do the two in your mind relate? When
1: I first came up with the haiku, I focused first on the brightness of the fish themselves. And I imagined them in the sun, and I could see the sun glittering in their scales. And for some reason then, what popped into my mind were wedding rings. And then I asked myself the question, where are these wedding rings? And then the answer came, in a pawn shop. I thought, well, that's interesting because something has been lost here. And while something is gained in the five Chinese brothers, the fish are lost. And I don't think anybody ever considers the fish. And I thought, someone really ought to consider the fish.
0: (laughs) In this, you know, you often deal with sea and sky, right? So there's the birds. And I've noticed in many of these, there's this notion of flight.
1: Yes. So for me, I think, as I look back on this, there is a kind of tension in each of the hybuens, especially that have the birds in them. And I like the idea of the tension because it creates a resonance and a, a kind of depth to them that I think wouldn't otherwise be present. The birds then allow for the possibility of a release from that tension so that something new may be discovered. Might we
0: read the poem Flight? I like how you kind of do in some ways a similar thing with this poem that you did with the last one. You Honor the bird.
1: And one of the things I try to do in The Hype One, and something that really attracts me as a writer, is to make what are called sudden and swift associations between images. So I like to find the unusual metaphor or the unusual association, because that then allows for me to sort of break boundaries of my own thinking, and I hope provide the reader with a new perceptual apparatus. And I've tried to do that in flight. Leaving the grocery store, I noticed a brown grackle perched on the handle of a shopping cart in the parking lot. Its angular head, like a bishop on a chessboard, was tilted, pointing to a movement in the sky. A helicopter slowly whirled out of the hanging clouds, its blades thumping the air like someone beating the dust out of a rug. The grackle and I were both silent as we watched it blank away and descend low over a cluster of houses its nose down like a dog sniffing for the trail of something it had picked up and lost. Then it disappeared from view. The grackle followed, lifting off, leaving the empty nest of the cart its shape changing into a pair of hands, rising into the air, while I, heavy with bags, trudged to the car, feeling more earthbound than ever, careful, though, to keep my eye on the sky while making sure I left nothing behind to track. Haiku. Darkening sky, a shadow takes me by the hand.
0: And I notice two things here. One is the word earthbound, how the bird kind of takes off like the helicopter, but in a more authentic way, I think. And then the notion of a shadow. Darkening sky, a shadow takes me by the hand. It's like the helicopter has a shadow and the bird follows the helicopter. And then I just noticed the notion of the shadow and I thought Jungian work there.
1: Jung certainly has been a great influence on how I think about things and the way I write. And the notion of the shadow, of course, is primary in Jungian thinking, but it's something not particular to Jung. It's a lived experience. We all have an aspect of shadow in us, of course. One of the aspects of shadow in this poem is the grackle itself, because that's not normally a bird we associate with transcendence or transformation. It's common, it's dark, it's loud, it's pervasive, it's you know ubiquitous in the sense of the de- desert here. So it, it doesn't have that sort of dove-like or swan-like quality that we tend to think in terms of romantic transcendence, but I thought this is wonderful. The grackle itself is a kind of a shadow of the helicopter that is searching, and the helicopter, of course, there are many in El Paso from the border patrol and customs agencies always prowling for whatever it is they're prowling for. So they're, they're really common. And this actually did happen, though, the grackle did lift off. I thought, well, that's a wonderful moment right there, as though the grackle were inviting me to follow it into the sky. But I'm, <laughs> I'm holding these heavy bags, <laughs> trudging to my car, thinking, no, this is better. The shadow's has got me by the hand, taking me home, saying, stay earthbound, stay centered, stay focused, don't follow the bird.
0: This is Arts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. Let's rejoin our conversation with writer Keith Belieb as he talks about his Haibun poetry collection, Pilgrimage. You also focus on music and not only the musicality of poetry, as well as talking about classical music and. I particularly love The Pianist, and I think this may well be my favorite. It seems to center the book. And I also like that there's a character that is created here. We've often been in the first person for many of these poems, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden we move to a female character who is The Pianist. Tell us about this one.
1: This is an interesting poem for me, Uh, and you're right, because I don't write— about many other characters, this is a book in which I explore the persona of the I, of the individual speaker. I can say in some ways, though, this does harken back to years ago in my master's thesis in poetry, because those poems were persona poems. I wrote about a character who actually, I wouldn't say I created, he actually came to me in my imagination and seemed to say, write about me, so I did. I enjoyed then writing this poem because it allowed me to get back in touch with another character that I don't associate with the letter I.
4: The luster in her eyes has grown dim, much like a pond gone gray with the last light of day. Yet her hands retained the shape of the music they played, kicking back and forth, almost in a sprint, across the piano keys and Scott Joplin's maple leaf rag. Then, slowing, moving backwards, as if her fingers were learning to walk again in Schumann's scenes from childhood until finally they disappear altogether, their skin fading into the pure light of Debussy's Claire de Lune. And when she had finished playing, and after the long applause, all that was left of her was her black dress draped over the piano stool, the lace at the end of the sleeves barely touching the hardwood floor. Haiku. At dusk, I put the last of my cash into the homeless woman's cup.
0: It seems like this person is living a whole life in front of us.
1: Yeah, it does, doesn't it?
0: Youth, middle, life, and then the end where she kind of disappears.
1: Yeah, I had fun doing that. I remember writing this poem, and I had that sense of, the different kinds of music that I'm talking about in the poem, Scott Joplin and uh, Schumann, Debussy, and they each carry a different rhythm and a different inflection, a kind of different experience. I thought, well, this would be fascinating to have someone playing these as a metaphor for, the, as you pointed out, a journey of life itself. What does that look like?
0: And there's a little bit of magical realism here. Now, the dress is draped over the stool after she finished the performance. But in a sense, she's left, but she's not there. The artifact of her being there is there. So she's disappeared, either into the piano, into the music, or into the great wide world beyond.
1: Yeah, who knows? I mean, she's lost all sense of corporality, and all that's left is the dress, as though that were enough. And that also reminded me of one of my favorite Hawthorne stories, The Minister's Black Veil, because they kept troubling, what does the veil mean, all the congregants in the story. What does the veil mean? And no one could come up with an answer. And I think the same thing with the dress. What does the dress mean? It could mean any number of things. One thing perhaps it may indicate or point to as a code, as a trope, as an image, it may be indecipherable. And that may be the very point, is it causes us to then stop thinking outwardly and it pulls us back into our own perceptual world to say, Maybe we need to let go of the categories of existence and just see this for what it is.
0: This idea that the audience, when you're in it, when you're inside of it, almost fades away. And that's what you kind of see with this, you know, as she's working through, at least for me, childhood and then childhood memories and then old age. Everything's kind of disappeared and all of a sudden she's shocked back into reality with the applause. But then she disappears.
1: Yes, I think that's a really good way to put it, Brad.
0: I have to hear a poem, certainly on the radio, about silence. What's your relationship with silence? And then what were you trying to capture in words which are not silent?
1: It's curious because when I'm alone and working, I work in silence. I don't have music playing. I don't put on the television. I work in the quiet house or my office is quiet. And in that sense, silence is bountiful in that when I'm there, things tend to occur to me more easily than if I'm in a, a place that is noised, I might say. And so I wanted to see what are the possibilities in silence? How does that help us? And it also gets us back to the Japanese notion of what one does, for example, when one sits in meditation. You want to really immerse yourself in silence so as to allow for preconceptions to fall away and for what is essential, or what they might even call no mind, for that to begin to emerge in itself.
4: Silence. At the end of the long train pulling away, silence darkens the station, spreading across fields pressed hard by winter. To the raven roosting alone in an abandoned attic, The only sounds that have escaped the stretch of silence are the drip of a faucet in the diner that closed at ten. The cranking of a can opener in the hands of an old woman surrounded by mewing cats. And a porch swing that creaks only once because the wind, being paper-thin, cannot even conjure a whisper.
1: Haiku. Gray morning, the woodpecker, the woodpecker wakes, wakes the, day. the day.
2: Blackberries.
0: So I used to uh, spend a lot of time in the hills of uh, Virginia picking blackberries. And, you know, it's such a, in so many ways, an archetypal experience, isn't it, picking Blackberries are picking fruit. There's the sense of the father at the end and the mother on the far edge of the forest, kind of savoring things. And there's a lot of lightness in this, I thought, summery feel of
1: picking blackberries.
4: Blackberries.
1: Blackberries.
4: Blackberries.
1: Dark clots on spiked branches. These blackberries glisten with a sweetness that their thornless cousins lack. Their barbed spines are both a warning and a dare, letting you know that you will bleed with every pluck.
4: Your fingers are pricked with each pick.
1: Droplets of blood mixing in with the honeyed clumps gathered in the bucket, the mound of them looking like a disassembled brain.
4: Blackberries.
1: And since this is not your first blackberry summer, you know to keep the level low, lest the berries on the bottom suffer under the weight.
4: Becoming too bruised to eat.
1: When you bring them home at day's end, at
4: day's end and
1: show them to your father, father, your mother's still on the far edge of the, forest. of the forest. He looks into the bucket, takes a bite from each, and glances at your hand-stained aubergine. He pauses for a moment. The moment. As he savors the sun's taste on his tongue.
4: Then smiles and says,
1: You've either been in another bar fight, or you've been crucified again.
4: You look up.
1: Your hands blackened with another summer of berry and blood, and say say yes Yes. to both.
4: Okay, yes to both.
1: Haiku. Full moon.
4: Full moon.
1: My face without.
4: My face without. Full moon. My face without. Wisdom teeth. Wisdom teeth.
1: And you're right. I think it is an archetypal experience. I mean, you can't help but think of Robert Frost after apple picking and all that is implied by that. But to pick fruit certainly is archetypal in the sense of be careful what fruit you pick because where it will lead you is something you should consider carefully. And you're also right. This is a light poem. And I tried to bring in those images at the end that seem rather heavy, but the way that, that the father voices them, you know that he's making a little a joke at the end. You've either been in another bar fight
2: or you've been crucified again.
0: Just to that you deal a little bit with the concept of decay and disease and age. And help me with the pronunciation of this one. kintsugi. Sugi, is that right? Yes, Kent Sugi. Kent Sugi, and there's a note in it, is a Japanese art of repairing broken pottery using resin mixed with gold dust.
2: It seems these days my body is made of clay. As common as a department store cup, as crude as an ashtray formed by a child. Each morning the spider cracks and fault lines of my mind. The missing fragments of my heart become more pronounced. It's then I recall The times I have slid off the shelf, been deliberately dropped, or have unwittingly hurled myself to the ground. I would like to take my damaged pottery of myself to a Kintsugi master who would use his special mix of resin and gold dust to painstakingly repair all of me that is broken. And after his work is done, and after I have paid what I owe, I will stand in the sun, my scars gleaming,
1: resplendent and beautiful. Haiku. Lightning strike, a new crack in a turtle shell.
0: And I'm aging a little bit too, Keith, and I love this poem because it so captures how I feel. (laughs) I do so wish that I could have one of these potters not only repair me, but make me whole. But as you suggest in this, the scars give us a lived sense of ourselves too.
1: Yes, I think we are known best by our scars. And again, back to Jung, he says, as we age, we get known best by our idiosyncrasies that we develop, because they differentiate and they particularize us in ways that are specific to our own life our own experience, and so I thought, well, that's perfect, because when I discovered this notion of kintsugi, and I looked them up and saw them, and they're beautiful, these broken pots that are mended with resin and gold, they're exquisite. I mean, I th- personally think they're more beautiful than the pothole. So this
0: idea that through our scars, we're really more beautiful than we are without them.
1: Yes, because they become the ley lines or the maps of our own being, and it's then something that we can see, oh, we're no longer generic. Are particularized.
2: The scars gleaming,
1: resplendent, and beautiful. Lightning strike, a new crack in the turtle's shell.
0: Talk a little bit about the literary elements that kind of find their way in these hybum, because you have allusions certainly to Frost, Blake, and you said Dante. Kafka
1: and Mark Twain. Yes, there are lots of literary allusions throughout these because my sensibility has been so keenly formed by my work as a teacher of literature and as a reader of literature. And, of course, two of my favorite authors are Kafka and Borges in that they both deal with worlds that are imagined, worlds that are difficult, worlds that you cannot pin down, uh, worlds in which you can both get lost and worlds in which you never are sure what's real and what's imagined.
2: Kafka calling. Kafka called, said, visit Borges.
1: But you're both dead, I said. So what, he said. Go. Hitched a ride on a flock of crows angling south. Landed in a maze of streets. Everyone in masks her eyes rolling like thunder, hailed a
2: cab, felt like I was crawling inside an egg,
1: passed by some buildings beginning to panic,
2: came to a lurching stop,
1: luckily I had a bag of raspberries, knocked on the door, smooth as the back of a violin, was greeted by Borges or... Or someone becoming Borges. Who brought me into the library where above a sleeping panther.
2: Books were singing on the shelves.
1: Haiku. Old insurance claims. Old insurance claims the vowels of fish. The vowels of fish.
0: And can I tell you why I love this? Because he's in Kafka's world on his way to find Borges. And then all of a sudden he's in Borges' world. Yes. Like it's a Kafkaesque
1: adventure to find Borges. <laughs> and then all of a
0: sudden, Borges opens the door and he's in the library. I love it.
1: Yeah, exactly it. And so the speaker here just throws himself into the journey and says, whatever comes, I'll go with it. So let's talk a little bit about afterlife. And it makes
0: sense because it's toward the end, but you have a bit of a coda. You have you have some other poems after this, this idea of paper and a bag that tumbles down the street past nameless diners. It's really a nice tour. You give us a kind of a tour, but it's a tour of what? The afterlife?
1: Or an afterlife, perhaps. One of the things that I I was thinking about with this book, especially when I got to this part of it, uh, many of the poems talk about changes of consciousness, transformation, transitions, transcendence. And I wondered, what is the afterlife of this new way of writing for me? and what sort of images of a possible afterlife might I present so that we might, using James Hillman's term, we might disturb the reader's perspective and we might disturb the reader's expectations of what we think of and what we've been told about afterlives. We often tend to think, I think, afterlives are something that we look forward to. But maybe there are afterlives that cause us to reexamine our perspective on things. And in the sense of what I've done with the poem is I've worked in a kind of surreal manner so that the afterlife is an afterlife of consciousness in the moment now, uh, not after death itself. And so because of that, if you go into the surreal realm or into what we might call into the world of the unconscious, what is presented to us there? What images come and then how do you deal with those after you have met them? When you do meet them, they will take you apart in some ways, which is key. The images in the afterlife here do cause you to disassemble yourself so that you lose sense of who you think you are, so that you open yourself to possibilities of who you can become.
0: All right, let's hear afterlife.
1: Afterlife. It will be October there. A paper bag tumbling down a nameless street past a diner where a man sits, accompanied only by a newspaper in a language he cannot read. Released from a nearby asylum, long-haired men in white shirts shake feral cats from their hair. Children on stoops build kites out of the bones of their ancestors. In the distance, a parade of trombones heads towards the cemetery, where each headstone is a thumb. We all put on masks and turn towards the horde of long faced spirits rushing towards us. We flinch a little as each of them calls us by name. Haiku, closed casket, all alone in the confessional.
0: All right. The last one I'd like to talk about is invitation. And in a sense, this book is an invitation to go on a pilgrimage with you. And perhaps I would think, and at least for me, to write your own high and you end with an invitation. Most of the time we get an invitation and then we go to the party. In this case, you're inviting us to something beyond the pilgrimage that you have taken us on.
1: What are you inviting us to? Well, at the end of every pilgrimage, and I'm thinking of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, you know, they went on pilgrimage, and so you have all these stories along the way, and I think of the Haibun as all these stories along the way of the pilgrimage itself. So once you get to the place of the pilgrimage proper, what do you do? Well, you engage in the ritual participation of the event, of course, but after, Where do you go? And if you are not changed by the pilgrimage itself, then the pilgrimage has been a failure. So there should be a transformation or a transposition of consciousness at the site of the pilgrimage and after. What does that mean and what is the invitation then? Go back and live your life based on these experiences and based on the pilgrimage you have undertaken and you cannot live it the way you have lived before. You must live it anew. And what that means to you is that it's something you have to find on your own, but you call upon these experiences to inform your continued search. That's the invitation. If you stand at the edge of the desert and open your arms, every particle of sand will invite you to let go of the parts of you that you no longer need. Notice that rocks do not mourn their slow shift into sediment, nor do the arroyos curse the sky after their waters turn to dust. And the cactus wren does not grumble about its charred song. Stop, and let yourself be like the rock-colored lizard, still as stone and allow the long days of wind and breath to gradually wear you away. Haiku. River Blossom, the blue heron on one leg.
0: Thank you so much for taking us on this Haibun pilgrimage. I find it amazingly beautiful and, as I said, kind of therapeutic. And I think people could easily take up their pens and give this a shot and kind of find themselves and find their own way.
1: I definitely think they could, and I hope that they will. Haibun is powerful in its transformative effect on how one writes. Uh, I'll mention something Sean O'Connor said in an interview in a journal recently. He was asked, what is your intention for the Haibun Journal? He said he would like to see, at some point, a Haibun writer get the Nobel Prize for Literature. He would like to see people really take up Haibun as a serious art form in the West because it's got a long tradition in Japan, of course. But the possibilities here, I think, are quite endless. So he would like to see people write in this form and see where it will take them.
0: I would love to try and use this in the class and see what the students come up with. I I just think it allows for unstructure and structure and imagining turns and also imagining the relationship between the narrative and the haiku and the space in between. Or, as you said, the silence is what makes the music.
1: Right. Right. Yes. Well, I hope you will use Hivebun in your classes, Brad. I think the students will enjoy it a lot.
0: This was really fun. I appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, Brad. This has been a great a great time for me.
0: Broadcast
4: from the studios
0: of KUAR and Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Thank you to musician, singer, and songwriter... Silas Haidt for the amazing soundscapes and songs. Thank you to actors Brett Eilert, Ashley Wright Eilert, Becca Story, Michael Fuller, Bobby Fuller, Paige Hines, and Kelvin Krako Thank you to Joseph Fuller of Orchestra of One for the piano and for helping us mix and master the episode. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Keith Palit for taking us on a pilgrimage in search of Iban poetry and for encouraging us all to enjoy this unique and creative expressive form. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Mitter. Let's heed the words of Basho. Real poetry is to live a beautiful life. To live poetry is better than to write it. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.